Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. My name is Drew Horning, and on this show today we have Billy Bush. Billy, it's great to have you. Billy has started his career in media, in in radio actually, in a small town in New Hampshire, then moved to my hometown, Washington, D.C., and then was the host of Access Hollywood, a host at the Today Show, and now is the host of Extra. Billy, welcome to the program. That was perfectly as I wrote it. Uh, very succinct, very nicely done, Drew. <laughs> I forgot to add, and also the father to three daughters. How old are your daughters? That's the real job. Uh, they are 16, 20, and 22. Three Young ladies, they're terrific. Fantastic. How did you hear about the Hoffman process? The Hoffman process was uh, came to me via my brother, who had gone uh, eight years prior to when I went. But uh, when I went through, uh, you know, sort of a, a national scandal or catastrophe or, um, you know, lost my job, and uh, here I am, my my career has never been bigger or stronger. I'm at the peak and kaboom, as can happen in this world now, in a half a breath, it's all over and uh, you're canceled. And I always, I'll leave the merits of it to, to, to others to debate. But I, um, for the first three months, was just a mess. I couldn't get out of my bed. I couldn't, I, when I did, it was to get some Jack Daniels. I mean, I was just, I couldn't believe. I was wallowing in my own self-pity. It was just like, What? And I can't, you know, no meetings, no nothing. And my brother came to me and said, uh, you need to go to the Hoffman process. I said, I, where you went years ago? He said, yep, you need to go. I said, uh, he said, it's for people who are paralyzed like you, psychologically, emotionally, mentally. I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll do anything. So I called his friend, one of my brother's close friends, is Hillary Illick, a uh, great instructor at Hoffman. And she not only got me in there, but, you know, she w ended up being my small group teacher. And I, to this day, owe, owe lots to her and to the process. When you showed up at Hoffman, I imagine that you were in a tough spot. You, you, you didn't think it would help, or maybe you were desperate for it to help. But that was maybe a rough first couple of days in the process. It was, um, although I was so desperate to get to... Uh, to, to, to get some type of breakthrough and get my life going again, that I, I, I came in full of excitement and, and I mean, not excitement, but, you know, ready to do the work, whatever the work was. And, you know, we all know there's a good hour to five hours of pre-work you have to do before you get there. That's pretty intense, isn't it? Very intense. And, um, you know, I'm answering every question from my perspective about my childhood and my life. When I got there and checked in, I was uh, I was ready to go, and 
I love therapy. I love talking, you know, about problems and issues. And, you know, I always have in my life. My mom's always supported it. And so when I say all these other people sitting around me, I felt in good company because I knew that they were struggling in their own way. And so how how did your process go? Take us there to a, a moment in time. Where are you? What's happening? What was it like? I'll tell you a few highlights from my experience were, one, I almost quit. It was Thursday, three days before the end of it. And I said, no way, I'm out. Jesus, throw my thing, I'm not doing this. And I went to Hillary and I said, Hillary, I'm not doing this anymore. It's not, no, it's not happening. And she just kind of like looked at me and I went back to my little cabin and I closed the door and I kind of just fell apart for a little while on the bed and, and I closed my eyes, you know, for about two minutes before packing my bags. And in that two minutes, I went, no, absolutely not. Wait a minute. You're falling into a classic trap. It's not not working. It is working. And this is the part where it's really working. You idiot. So I got right back up, grabbed my things and walked right back into my class and was like, okay, where were we? <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it, it really was, it was the turning point. The Hoffman process is difficult because you have to stay in your lane. You, I mean, you have to, you got to stay focused on why you're there, your life, your reasons, but you have to stay within your lane. And also, Billy, the fact that it was Thursday, you had worked so hard, you had survived the week. And just when things were getting better, you know, there can be a commitment to suffering and, uh, Part of what I hear you say is that you were in pain because things were shifting. You wanted to leave because actually you were getting better. You were healing. Yeah, I think it was, you know, you, if, if the expression, it has to get a little worse before it gets better, is think, well, it's just got to get uncomfortable before you can, you know. And I had all kinds of, you know, issues that I had brought in other than the fact that I was had a strong career and was fired. All of a second, my marriage was in trouble. I was on, it was, it was great, you know, tension. That was not well, all at the same time. I have issues from childhood, like everyone else, that involved assault and, you know, when I was little and things like that, that all of these things come to the, come to the table. And here you are and you realize, okay, I am not as equipped as I think I might be to handle all this stuff at once. In fact, I'm totally ill-equipped. And it just started to get very uncomfortable and started to come undone. But that's when I leaned in. When in the process were you able to drop into some deep healing or some deep grieving? You've spoken elsewhere about your dad not being emotionally available as much as you would have liked in your childhood. How, how and when were you able to heal some of that in the process? I found a tremendous amount of empathy for my dad. There's a particular exercise. I won't give it away, but it's where you really, you, you can get yourself into a, and it's an experiential thing that gets you into relationship with your father. Um, I can say this, I think at the same age. And I really got to look at his childhood and understand how he grew up with the austere, disciplined, you know, compliments are few and far between father that he had and when you understand your parents and where they were and you put yourself in their shoes 
then you really get it, right? He's working with the best that he has. And by the way, and there's another part of me that's like, just wait a minute, suck it up. Your father is the most loving, high integrity, you know, not, not loving, but it, uh, he's a true citizen of the world and a great, great man, high integrity in the whole thing. So some people don't have fathers. They're not around. I could nitpick him all day, but yeah, you know, I love you is a hard word. He's getting a lot better at it now because now I just bombard him with it. But look at us. We're a different generation. You know, my kids, I don't say hello or goodbye without I love you on, you know, on the phone with them. It's maybe a little too much. Make it, make it more special. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I learned a lot about him and my, and my mom too. In that regard, there's a lot of experiences like that. You know, you go up into the mountains during the process and you're by yourself and you have to go through some exercises and some rituals that, you know, put you in a place of truly understanding your folks as you have to, you know, you have no other, you don't come out until you have. And it's, it's fascinating. And you still, you still remember those moments, don't you? I do. I remember a few of them specifically, one on my own um, up into the hills where I climbed by myself. It was just incredible to do that. I don't like being by myself at all. Like I can't go to a movie alone. I don't like to, uh, you know, I love to have people around, you know, getting divorced and living in my own house. You know, the girls are away, except for the young one who goes back and forth. But when I'm alone, I'm like, hmm, should I have a friend over? <laughs> so it was incredible to have these moments, you know, sitting by a stream all by myself in this beautiful place or up in the mountains. You've been described as being a, a great interviewer and extras listenership has doubled uh, during your time as the host. What is it about how you show up with other people? Speaking of being with other people and liking other people's company, how do you do it that makes uh, people be vulnerable and open and trust you? You know, that's interesting because part of the answer is what got me in trouble. Whereas, you know, whoever that, per you, you, before I interview with people, you, you sort of meet them where, where they are, right? I mean, then understand that they, oh, he's, he's like me. And I, I think I am a multiple personality person. I'm very interested in, in what makes Martha Stewart tick as well as, you know, what makes Tom Cruise tick. That's a tougher one. But uh, I find myself to be, especially post-process, much more empathetic, interested in other people. You know, curiosity is that when you go in thinking, this is my moment, what I'm going to do here, what I'm going to say, and how it's going to be so funny when I do that, you have no show. Your guest is your star, is your, you know, it's your name on it. But that person's carrying all the weight, and it's your job to put them into that, into their best place, where they truly are their authentic self. And I've been doing it a long time. I was played golf yesterday and ran into my friend Jason Bateman, who who I've talked about doing a new this new show that I want to do, which is similar to a Larry King in that it's a one on one conversation. They don't have him as much on television, and uh, you know he was he was he couldn't have been more supportive because he's like that's you're the guy that we'd like to talk to, and with everything you've been through in your life, you're not a judgmental person. You know what I mean? Like oh, he's not going to sit there and glare over his glasses at me. You know what I mean? Yeah. So for folks listening, Larry King just recently passed. You mentioned Larry King prior to us pushing record. What is it that you appreciate about his interview style, him as a host, what he did with his program? 
Well, he was an infotainer, uh, an unabashed infotainer. When he hired his executive producer, Wendy Walker, who served as 18 years in that place, and she was at a White House, you know, as a, as a journalist at the White House, when he approached her, and she said, oh, he goes, I'm an infotainer. She went, ugh, oh, God, really? What is that? And she realized in the end, well, you know what? So am I. I'm an infotainer. And we provide information, but darn it, let's make it interesting. And and Larry had the suspenders and the set, and he had this incredibly iconic hub for people to come. That person of interest that we were talking about that day ended up on Larry King at 9 Eastern at the top of the show. You know, if there was a something happened in a coal mine and there was a hero in West Virginia or something, that person is sitting there under lights, you know, live on satellite with Larry. You know, if it's the you know news broke, the OJ situation, you know, there's Larry, he's on the air, he would handle breaking news, but he also had these incredible people of interest. And he didn't ask long-winded, you know, look how smart I am questions. You know, he asked brief, short questions about and, and got the guest talking. He was famously underprepared because he wanted to learn more. That's really interesting. He he was famously underprepared as a strategy for keeping him more present and curious in the moment in the interview. He's the, his most famous line is, I never learned anything by talking. He was asking questions? Right. It's like, I want to sit there and listen. So he'd say, uh, how are you feeling? <laughs> there, there's you know, a short question, and he would little short little prods that went along, but he never heard Larry wax on. Is that something you want to do in the future? Can you talk about that? Is that a, a vision you have? It's something I'm working on. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think I'll be open and, and frank and tell you that, you know, I'm, I've done my, we, we did a great thing with extra, turned it around. It needed a shot in the arm. It's got a, you know, four years on Fox broadcast stations after a one year trial. So that's a very successful thing for the company. And so, you know, we're in discussions now of uh, maybe I can do more. And that's where we are. Nice. So your career took off so well, and it's just that incident and then going to the process. As you look back now, what what did you learn? Because I'm sensing some humility, some humbleness, but not a lack of confidence or willingness to still put yourself out there. People gave me my confidence everywhere I went you know, to the grocery store or, you know, uh, just out in public anywhere, I would get people come up, oh, put their arm around me and say, we love you. You get, you know, get back in that game, my man, you can do it. And, um, you know, I think that largely people felt that the punishment outweighed the crime for me, for my role in the whole event when they really looked at it. But, it met, but the man that was at the centerpiece of it all became the most polarizing figure our, we will ever know. And so any, anyone gets caught up in that wake, you know, so that once the, in people's emotions are hot uh, and that all settles down, then the cream rises back to the top and you're fully allowed to return to where you were. I'm not where I was, but I, I will get there. How has your relationship with yourself changed as a result of, of all of this? Well, to borrow from my uh, an old lacrosse coach of mine, uh, you realize your shit doesn't stink. You know, you, you, I thought I was pretty cool and, and bulletproof, and I guess I might have been a little full of myself. 
here I look at me, you know, I'm on the Today Show now in New York. I have a car service that picks me up outside my apartment building every morning, you know, same driver and I'm so important. God, am I important and all that. And then bam, you lose it all. No one's taking your phone calls. You're, you're out. You're out of the cave. You know, we're, we're social creatures. We crave contact and, and I'm excommunicated in an instant. And it would be a terrible shame to come emerge from that without anything positive coming from it. I mean, I'm very lucky to have been wise enough to, to, to take that there's a tremendous amount of value. It hurts. You got to get through it. But there's a lot of value in knowing what it feels like to be down when you're talking to people. Because everybody's going to be down. I don't care who you are. If calamity has not struck yet, it will. Read some Stoic philosophy and do your best to prepare, like Marcus Aurelius, you know, for the things that are terribly upsetting in life. Is that part of what you talk about when it comes to empathy, having that heart open for the person you're talking with? Yeah, absolutely. I'm the last, I used to be a little judgy, you know, when I was, I had a little live television show before I talked about all kinds of things, but there, you know, you could spell, oh my gosh, these Hollywood marriages, they never were, you know, never work, blah, blah, blah. You don't know what's going on in someone's home. Shut up, little Billy Bush talking away. You, you don't know. There's a popular practice called, right, DBT out there. And I think every college student should be a, man, a mandatory course in DBT, especially in this world in social media where we cancel people and we send nasty tweets and things blow up quickly, negatively, very easily. DBT means, you know, dialectical behavioral therapy. You, you, where is someone coming from? You don't know that. The man in the front row at the lecture where you're giving a speech who's yawning, he's not bored with what you're saying. Perhaps he flew from Shanghai to be here to see you. You don't know. You make assumptions. I find myself much more empathetic for especially people who are in a tight spot. And when I see a lynching happening out there by the media and the mob and all that, I'm known to stand right up now at the end of the show and say, back it up. This is phony. This isn't real. Don't be involved in this. Really separating the, the story in your head versus what might be actually happening outside of your own inner world. I can't stand to see someone get attacked, which we do it all the time. It's blood sport. It's, but there's so many things underneath it, right? It's all, it's, it's clickbait. It's, it's the link economy. It's all the, you know, it's a lot of the things happening. You said little Billy Bush, you don't know what's going on. I was thinking about the, the way in which we describe it in the, the process. We talk about the emotional child. Did you get a sense of your emotional child during your process? I did. You know, I told you when I was eight years old, I went through a very uncomfortable experience, which I shared with, you know, Hillary, a very embarrassing experience. And you, you hear them all the time. It's an, a molesting or an assault of some kind. And, and I can't, I mean, l literally, if I, I think that is one of the biggest things in this country. If everybody felt no shame and free and community and coming forward with a story like that, I can't tell you how many people it would be. I think it would be massive amounts. Every time you read, you're constantly reading a story about someone else who's experienced something when they were young. I just think that's happened a lot. But anyway, that 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 created a um, a boy who was overcompensating all the time. He, that created the class clown. That created the person that had to go for the joke every time. 
to lighten the moment because he couldn't sit in it. And a naughty sense of humor. It, it, it definitely, you know, as, as Hillary, my teacher at Hoffman, would say, she's like, you know, you have a tendency to go funny. It is very funny, she says. You know, I mean, I'll give you that. But it's, it's sort of like a knee-jerk reaction to be funny and a little naughty and a little, you know, it's your defense mechanism. How did it serve you, that kind of naughty humor over the line as a pattern it kept people from looking at the real thing, that there was a kid with attention issues who was suffering to, to do well in school. I did very poorly. Was, you know, my grades were you know, Cs and C-minuses. And, you know, there was a struggling kid there. Yet I was a great athlete, captain of all the teams. And, you know, I was an All-American lacrosse player and all these cool things that also are beautiful distractions from the fact that you're emotionally kind of ill-equipped here or, or a little damaged. What's it like to talk about this now? I talk at it, about it like uh, that book, Untethered Soul by Michael Singer, you know, where, where you kind of observe. I can talk about it like from an observant role. I'm seeing that boy. I'm seeing that, see him with empathy and sympathy. You know, that's how, observantly. And I think that's helpful because, you know, I'm, I don't need to get like a... Lots going on in the world right now. I feel like I'm pretty equipped, well enough equipped to, to handle it all. And um, But I still look back compassionately on, on myself as a kid. It is the, the hardest thing as a teacher of the process to see adults who experience such painful things in their childhoods and then use those incidences, those moments of pain that they had no ability to stop, they were just children, and to use it against themselves to weaponize those things that weren't their fault against them and shame themselves. Yeah. Shame, we, I mean, shame is a big one at the Hoffman process. Thank God, because everyone has it. You know, it's that thing that we carry around inside of us that says, oh, if people knew this about me, oh boy, I'd be out of the cave. I'd be kicked out. No dinner for me. What shifted for you around your relationship to shame? What did you notice? I realized that shame sucks and uh, it serves, it's, it's, it is a terribly negative cancerous effect on me and on everyone. The only way to shed it, to set it free is to say it out loud, you know, and to just lay it out there. You wouldn't believe how many people just, no one makes fun of you. The reaction that you fear is never the one you get. That's why it's such an imposter. It's almost like the, the not speaking it makes it stronger. Yes, it festers in there and becomes this, you know, monster in your closet. So has this, has this changed how you relate to friends and people in your life? Are you more now transparent around shame and all the shit that we have in our lives? Is is Billy Bush this now not only funny, but also brutally honest guy who is talking about the elephant in the room? Yeah, you still have got to watch out for the cancel media, you know, cancel people that are trying to, you know, de- don't get too bold. But I certainly feel like I have the cancellation antibodies. If you know what I mean? Like I can probably, I think someone tried it again. I'd be like, no, no, I'm sorry. You do not get to remove me from three years. You will get absolutely pounded by me if you come for me. 
I, that is a fact. So I do feel like I should use this experience of having survived my own event and what I've learned at the Hoffman process in places to free other people, invite them to free. I've turned on many people to the Hoffman process, by the way. I've had all kinds of people call me, ask me. Uh, I know Liza, who runs the place, has you know, said we've, we, we get people coming here because they read about it in a magazine from you or you've talked about it on Stephen Colbert or whatever it was. And I do. I think it's, uh, it's a wonderful place for people who are feeling paralyzed in their life, preferably older people. You know, if you're 18, you're not done yet. And, and why is that, Billy? What's the, what's the waiting for? Because um, you're not done. You're going to have more to, you might want, you're going to save yourself a trip. You might have to go back. Developmentally, you know, we're, we're still, we're still going at that point. And it requires a certain amount of maturity, life experience to, to do your best processing. I had people in my late twenties in my group. I had people who were 65 and I had one person who was 70 something. I mean, we're never done. Can you imagine that your daughters will go at some point? I do. Uh, my youngest one, Josephine, I'm, she's 22. I consider her my youngest because she's so small, but she's the oldest. I eventually will give her the gift of Hoffman. Probably all of them. I mean, God, you kids are going to have so much to do. Just expunging my, my poison in your life, me, this t- that's going to take you three or four days. Then you'll do a day with mom. And then... <laughs> so you're you're acknowledging that... In sending them, you know, they'll work through things and patterns they got from you. Yeah, totally. You know, I look back on if I were if I were them, if I sat in their shoes, I could pick out all the flaws of my father being me from their perspective in a second. Yeah. Under my many years of frustration, probably quick to anger and judge. And and then, you know, the marriage falls apart. And why didn't? he fight harder why didn't he you know i i i don't know but i imagine there's lots in there and i'd love to see them go work it out at the hoffman process and every kid has trauma you know of their own and maybe some you don't know about so i'd like them them to go and be able to deal with it you've hit this point a couple times that we all have it the guy sitting next to you has it he's just not talking about it it's almost like can we really get through childhood unscathed no so impressionable and sensitive and dependent yeah i there's no such thing as a perfect childhood there's no such thing as you know someone escaping and getting into adulthood without negative patterns that have been taken in and and adopted or one that's developed because you're in rejection of the way you grew up i mean there's it's all it's all worth a living autopsy A living autopsy, I love that. But you just mentioned an interesting thing, this kind of reaction or rebellion to parents as a pattern as well. Is that a a part of what you learned at the process? That's a big one you learn. Big one you'll learn at the process is, for example, I said my father was emotionally unavailable, which is not unavailable. He's just not an emotional, loving person. He's not the guy that puts his arm around and says, I love you, son. I'm so proud of you. He'll say, boy, we're real proud of you. That's so great, kid. All right, kid. Call you soon. See you later. You know, a tender moment of I love you is not in his wheelhouse. Um, It's not the way he rolls, and that's fine because he definitely makes up for it in actions. Presence is never, is always there. It's unfailing. 
because of that, I, I'm now the guy, oh, I love you, honey, I'm smothered dad, you know, smothered, I love you, I love you so much, oh, come here, baby, give me a hug, oh, she, why, you don't want a hug from dad, oh, come on, what's wrong, you know, it's like, you're overcompensating here, <laughs> it's annoying, yeah, I'm a teenage girl, you're annoying me, get off me. So, Billy, I'm grateful for this conversation about your process and life after your process, thanks for being a part of it. Yeah, I hope to see you um, soon. And I, I know that there was damage done in uh, Santa Elena property, and it's heartbreaking because it's a lot of damage. And I just hope things get back in order soon and people get to return in person to the Hoffman process. Right. Such a wild time with the pandemic. I wish you luck in your future endeavors and uh, grateful for our time here. Thank you, Drew. You're as great as your friend Hillary Illick, my teacher at Hoffman, said you would be. So I appreciate it. It's nice you have such a, a fond memory of your guide through that process. She was amazing. She's still a great friend. I've seen her since. I've had a couple of private sessions with her. Love her. Awesome. Thank you, Billy. for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.